Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 268 of 40 Going On 14. I am Mike. I am Patrick. I'm Joel. And I'm Josh. And at this point in the winter, I wouldn't voom if you put 4,000 volts through me. I'm bleeding demised. Nice. <laughs> oh, we better get us a new Josh, then. I'm pining for the fjords. I'm completely out. I've got a slug, though. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, does it fly? No. He's an ex-Josh. It's uh, hardly a bloody replacement. Replacement then, is it? All right. Now we are doing the what? Monty Python show. It's <laughs> no forty going on fourteen. Yes, uh, Monty Python. We have been talking about doing this show for a long time, and uh, just recently on Netflix, the everything uh, one down. Yeah, everything exploded on Netflix last month, and one down five to go also popped up which is the last stage performance that they have done in both time-wise and forever-wise. And, uh, yeah, we're talking about Monty Python, some effects they had on culture, and all sorts of crazy stuff they did. And for those of you that, that don't know or can't guess, um, they are near and dear to all of our hearts. Yes. Mm-hmm. So we've been waiting a long time to do this episode. Mm-hmm. Well, if you like waiting a long time for episodes. <laughs> Date Pat. Right. Oh, oh, wait. What? what? Huh? Well, you won't have to wait a long time if you enjoy all the great podcasts on the Podcast Collective. Such, such as? I Am Salt Lake, Tales from the Hard Side, Mom and the New Dad, Talk Music to Me, and of course, the Red Dead Radio Hour. It's slowly turning into Curly from Three Stooges. Sounds like he's playing a saw. <laughs> <laughs> yep, and we're looking for our older stuff. iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, TalkShoe, Podverse FM, NoonFM.com, and find our stuff also on Podchaser. You can go over there and leave us reviews. And uh, 708 Now Wrap, that's 708-669-9727 is where you can come and leave us a voicemail and let us know <laughs> what's going on. I heard radio. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. That, Do we have any voicemails? This is nope. the shit you've been missing, people. Yep. This is no, it. No, that was last week. Oh, yeah. Well, they were missing it for weeks before, so we still we got some lag, some mislag to catch up on. Mislag? I don't know. I'm making this shit up as I talk. You haven't learned that by now? I'd never have guessed. Well, that's the genius of it. Genius. That's the genius of it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I think it's about that time. It is about that time. This week in music, movies, and TV. And sports. 
Yes, so the date this week is October 5th, 1969, the debut of Monty Python's Flying Circus. <laughs> yep, so there you go. This is a long twee, ladies and gentlemen, so buckle up. He had a lot to get out of his system. <clears throat> I was so, pent up. music, good lord. Needing a good squawk. <laughs> the number one song in the land was Sugar Sugar by the Archies. Do, 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 do. Oh, honey, honey. Do, 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 do. You're my candy girl. I think we're done. I don't remember them counting. Somebody, somebody needs to charge Mike. <laughs> Just Get him turn, a, turn the crank. <laughs> Get him a sword of cognac. <laughs> okay. We, we, gotta, we can leash the cognac sword. <laughs> And some crank. Wait. <laughs> wait. <laughs> Mike got uh, a cognac sword for Christmas. That is true. I got a three foot long glass sword filled with cognac and then Pat mailed me some pills. <laughs> Joel Made mailed a me a Joel mailed me a copy of Leaving Las Vegas and they said have a good time. <laughs> He's the prickly pear. <laughs> I invite you all to my funeral, despite what they oh. say. Except for that guy. He knows who he is. Yeah. That guy. Anyway. So October 9th was the release of the final single by Diana Ross and the Supremes, Someday We'll Be Together. The single was the final number one hit in the 1960s. After a farewell concert in January 1970, Diana Ross left the Supremes for a solo career. She did all right. Yeah. I'd say so, yeah. She held her own. There's no Archie's, but... Oh no, we've started the loop again. Uh, Gwen Stefani, singer and songwriter, formerly of No Doubt, was born October 4th in Fullerton, California. Hmm. She's a good singer. Mm-hmm. No Archie's, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <she> okay. <laughs> I'm not putting this quarter in anymore. He'll <laughs> uh, be dancing for hours. Nehemiah Curtis Skip James was an American Delta blues singer, guitarist, pianist, and songwriter. His guitar playing was noted for his dark minor key sound, and he used an intricate finger-picking technique. James first recorded for Paramount Records in 1931, but those recordings sold poorly, haven't been released during the Great Depression, and he drifted into obscurity. After a long absence from the public eye, James was rediscovered and helped start the blues and folk revival in the 1950s and 60s. During this period, James appeared at folk and blues festivals, gave concerts around the country, and recorded several albums for various record labels. His songs have influenced and been covered by generations of musicians, and he has been hailed as one of the seminal figures of the blues. Skip James passed away due to his lifelong overall poor health on October 4th. Thor- Thorth? 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 <laughs> October 3rd. That's not a date, Joel. <laughs> wow. He gets you to an intricate finger-picking technique and blows it on October 4th. I had my money on Seminole, really. That was where I was figuring he was going to jack that up. You got through all that paragraph and blew it on the, on the, the number. You made up a new number just to fuck it up. It's Thorth in this lousy smarch weather. May, may the Thorth be with you. Oh, uh, oh, Jesus Christ. Uh, I was all ready to give you praise for getting through it. And then he thorthed all over it. You fumbled. <laughs> you you munched yourself at the one yard line. I know, I munched it. Oh, <laughs> happy Thorth of July. 
Uh, remember, remember the fourth of December. Uh, That's not a number. I know it is now. I'm calling Webster's Dictionary or whatever. I don't know. PJ Harvey, English musician, singer, and songwriter, was born in Bridport, Dorset, England, on October 9th, and is a favorite of Joel's. Whew, I'm crying again. <laughs> and finally, in music, on October 10th. The Jesus Christ Superstar soundtrack album by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice was recorded. Yay. It's a pretty good soundtrack. What the hell Indeed. You are? All right. So, oh, movies. Jesus. That, that was a rough first quarter of the tweet. <laughs> so, have you just, like, not been talking since we stopped, started recording? <laughs> I don't need Shut to talk, you know? it's Shut up. <laughs> All right. The number one movie in the land was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Great flick. Great movie. Yep. Absolutely. Good flick. A little bit weird in the pacing at some points. A little bit weird with the bicycle thing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, they, you know, the story behind that, right? It wasn't even like in the script or anything. They just found a random bicycle on the set and they're like, they're like, well, this was about the time bicycles were invented. Wouldn't you think they would enjoy, like, you know, like if they found a bike and they just decided to throw it in there? And, you know, BJ <laughs> Thomas was like, like, I got a song for this. <laughs> of course he does. Yeah. <laughs> It's kind of right. sad though, because I've I've called the uh, "Don't worry, Butch," the uh, "Fall Kill Ya" at work, and blank looks all around. <laughs> it's like, sad. It, it is. Come on. <laughs> so, all right. Born on October eighth, Jeremy Davies, real name Jeremy Boring, is an American actor. <laughs> he is known for. for <laughs> we, a, we found a fan of Jeremy Davies. Oh. <laughs> Uh, he's known for portraying the Norse god Balder in God of War, which I have been playing for the last three or four days. Corporal Upham in Saving Private Ryan, Daniel Faraday on the ABC series Lost, and Dickie Bennett in Justified. Wow, okay, I did not know Faraday and uh, the voice of Boulder were the same guy. I can, like, picture Jeremy Davies now. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that Faraday and, and Upham were the same. That kind of blew my mind when I was writing this. I can't, uh, now I, the idea of him playing a Norse god just blows my mind, because Faraday wasn't exactly the most... Strapping. Well, you remember who Upham, Upham was the guy that couldn't get up the stairs to save the dude who was getting stabbed with the bayonet. Yeah, that was rough. Upham was the 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 corporal that they pulled out of the out of the press corps. Remember for the to be the translator. Yeah, he was in spanking the monkey. All right, uh, Zach Galifianakis, American actor from such films as The Hangover, Birdman, and The Comedians of Comedy, was born in Wilkesboro, North Carolina, on October first. Between two ferns. Absolutely funny, funny gentleman. If yeah. there's anybody out there that somehow doesn't know him by now, I, I was always a big fan of his, and I was, I, I'm happy to see him finally getting known. All right. Shane Butterworth was born on October 4th. Um, <laughs> <sir. laughs> oh, Jesus, you got me. <laughs> that made it all worthwhile. It's funny because it's true. Shane Butterworth was born on October 3rd in Sherman Oaks, California. He is an actor known for playing Timmy in TBNB, which, of course, is the classic Tyra Banks Needs Balls. <laughs> I think she has some in a jar or something. I wouldn't doubt it. Oh, man. No, that, that's actually, you were very close. It's Tyra Banks Needs Ballin'. Oh. No, that is, that is uh, the Bad News Bears. Oh, yeah, we did a show on that one. Yep. The Bears. Uh, in addition, he had one appearance on The Love Boat. He currently resides in L.A. and is a personal trainer. With a last name Butterworth, I find that funny. His Butter. wife is Mrs. Butterworth. Right. Yeah. 
It's funny because that's a syrup. <laughs> syrup is funny. And he's not fat, I'm assuming. You don't know. Thirth. <laughs> Steve McQueen, British filmmaker and artist, known mostly for 12 Years a Slave, was born in London, England on October 9th. Not that Steve McQueen. Oh, the <laughs> other Steve McQueen. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'd, like to, I'd like to hope at one point or another we possibly could figure out how to do a Steve McQueen show, but I know it's not possible. Yeah, the, the now would be pretty short. Yeah. We would need a, a show that has a movie that he did that's been remade. Which that's more likely. Yeah, to, that's way more likely. Get, Are they going to remake Bullet? I would love them to remake Bullet. If you can right? make, remake Bullet, who would you want to play Steve McQueen? Joseph well, Gordon-Levitt. You know they're going to cast like The Rock. Better not. If they if they redo Bullet and then turn it into like a comedy type shit, that'll be like they did with like Scarcity and Hutch. That would be depressing. I'm trying to think of an actor that has his same kind of. What about like a Ryan Gosling? Yeah, I could go. I could definitely go for that. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Oh, Ch- Channing Tatum. Ooh, mate. Yeah. Nah, I don't know. Not so much Channing Tatum. His he's got such a small face. <laughs> he's got big. He's got a big head. Got a little face. And giant pecs. Big. That's just... Jeremy Renner. And a great ass. <laughs> All right. So TV. <laughs> the top shows were the Over the Hill Gang, Rowan and Martin's Laughing, Gunsmoke, and Bonanza. Dun, 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 I Bonanza. do not know the Over the Hill Gang. What is that? It was. A, uh, it, was it was a TV movie. Prequel to uh, the Golden Girls. I All I saw on it was it was a TV movie. Okay. Was... All right, then. So on October 5th, Karen Parsons, American actress who played Hillary on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, was born. Aw. And then Love American Style premiered on September 29th. Another Aww. very, <laughs> very weird TV shows that uh, Jeremy, Jerry Minor, comedian and actor from many movies and television shows, including Saturday Night Live and the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, was born on October 4th. Aww. <laughs> Born October 10th, Wendy McLendon Covey has been in a few comedy shows such as Reno 911 and The Goldbergs. Aww. And if you aren't familiar with her, she's the blonde, uh, big-breasted sheriff on Reno 911 who's oh. horribly filthy but incredibly funny. And she <laughs> plays the mother on The Goldbergs, which if you're not watching it, I highly, highly recommend it. It's, it's very funny. Huh. Yeah. I, I, I disagree, but... <laughs> I, I watched it under protest. I was, I wasn't, I didn't think it was going to be that good, and I really, I really enjoy it. Huh? Yeah, I, I, I watched enough of it to resign it to comedy, comedy cemetery material. No, I think it's great. It makes me laugh. Barry is funny. It is great. The, the main character Adam is kind of annoying, but I mean the rest. Of, it's kind of like How I Met Your Mother. How did you watch, you you watch it for the rest of the cast? It's no Archies. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, honey, honey. Da, 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 da. Yeah, I can go. Moving on to sports. Da, da, For the fourth da, time. <laughs> sports. October 1st was the birthday of NHL defenseman Igor Ulanov, a journeyman who played for 11 teams in his professional career. That's a lot of teams. Yep. For one player. Got That's why he was a journeyman. He, he journeyed. A That's a little harsh. What? What? He called him what? a journey horror. What the hell? Well, Aww. I don't really know where to go from that. Thanks, Joel. He ended it. The next bullet point is a good idea. Brett Favor. <laughs> <laughs> Brett Favre, American NFL quarterback and model actor, was born in Gulfport, Mississippi on October 10th. And I'm pretty sure all you guys know Brett Favre. He's popular yeah. enough. He's big into sports, just like Chai Chai Rodriguez. <laughs> He wears Crocs. 
He wears whatever the hell he wants. Cause he's oh, who's going to tell him not to? <laughs> he's fucking Brett Favre. He is? Well, he, yeah, yeah, he's the only one that can do that whenever he wants. Oh, good point. Yeah. Um, October Favre. 2nd was the Seattle Pilots' last game in Seattle. In their franchise-ending game, they had their 98th loss of the season. 3-1 oh to the Oakland A's in front of just 5,473 <laughs> fans. I mean, that is some major league shit right there. Like, <laughs> wow. You said major league in reference to baseball. Uh-huh, but I was talking about the move. The team moved to Milwaukee as the Brewers the next season. Yeah. Maybe they won't know us here. <laughs> <laughs> and lastly, Marcus Aaron Robertson, born October 2nd, was a former NFL football safety and currently a coach for the Denver Broncos. Robertson spent the last 27 seasons as a player, then an administrator, and a coach for the last 11. Robertson was drafted by the Houston Oilers in the fourth round of the 1991 NFL Draft, was twice named NFL All-Pro. He played in 162 regular season games with 144 starts and finished his career with 800 tackles, 24 interceptions, and 72 passes deflected. Is that impressive? Yes. I mean, yeah, those are pretty big numbers. Yeah. Cool. Oh. That's it. That's it for the tweet. Play us off, Joel. Nah, 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 nah. All right, that happened. So Monty Python has been an inspiration to all of us. True. Yes. <laughs> that's the <laughs> end, folks. <laughs> well, it's funny because <clears throat> I got super duper into Monty Python almost immediately before I met you guys. I've been into Monty Python since sophomore year of high school. I used to watch it on PBS, like growing up, just initially because of the cartoons. I was like, what is a cartoon doing on PBS? Then I was like, oh, there's funny stuff. (laughs) What's a cartoon on PBS doing that not trying to teach me something? Right. Where's Grover? Damn it. (laughs) Yeah, I was actually into Douglas Adams before I was into Monty Python. Funny. And I literally do not have a mem- a moment of my life where I don't remember watching Monty Python. My father was a big fan, and like me being his son, he introduced me into you know like he did most of his interests to Monty Python at a very early, and I loved him. So I've been watching Monty Python since before I can remember walking. So then let me make sure I understand. So Pat got it through his father, but the other three of us kind of came to it on our own. Yeah. Kind of rolled. Well, I mean, there was in middle school, there was this mention about Holy Grail. Everybody just kind of talked about Holy Grail, and I didn't, had never seen it. But then once, like sophomore year of high school, I finally got a hold of a copy, um, watched it, loved it, and just, I am, I have, I have copies of all the scripts from Monty Python's Flying Circus. Really? Yes. That's cool. Oh, yeah. I've I've got a ton. I've got Monty Python songbook. I've got a couple histories of them. Was huge into Monty Python all through high school, <clears throat> and it played a huge um, uh, influence on my my sense of humor and performing. For sure, brought a little bit absurd absurdity into it. In fact, to the point where for our senior um, talent show, me and a couple other guys did the constitutional peasant scene from Holy Grail for the entire school and you can tell it wasn't one of those things that people were really into because the only person that was laughing was i think it was the english teacher (laughs) well i i think i don't think i'm stepping out of line by saying this i think one of the reasons that that we bonded as friends over the over the, the years is because this is 
our comedy wheelhouse. I mean, we this this is one of the things that taught us comedy was this you know this this comedy troupe. Mm-hmm. And for I, I sure. Mean, so so our our comedies just gelled because you know if it's if it's so, if something like this is something that you you know during your formative years you you grow up with it's, it's obviously going to have a huge influence on what you like in the future. Absolutely. Well, I've got the um the sixteen ton box set. That's the whole series. Same. Same here. Yeah, the orange box set. Yep. Yep. And uh, the very first time, the only movie I hadn't seen after, when we hit college was uh, The Meaning of Life. And I remember watching that at Mike's place where when you and Susie lived in the walk-up. Oh, in Oak Park. Yeah. Yes. Yep. I didn't realize it was that long. That was the first time I I ever seen that movie. That's the only one I hadn't seen. And I was waiting. I was like saving it <laughs> for a rainy <laughs> day because I didn't want to run out of Python. And um, yeah, I watched it with you guys for the first time. Yeah. So anyway, for those of you that um, are not familiar with uh, Monty Python or not as familiar, um, it's a six-man British, mostly British, comedy troupe uh, starring Graham Chapman, the uh, former Graham Chapman. Uh, he died in what eighty-three, I think. Eighty-nine. Is that right. Eighty-nine. Yeah. And John Cleese, Eric Idle, Terry Jones, Michael Palin, and Terry Gilliam. Terry Gilliam being the only American out of the six. Mm-hmm. It occurs to me that I got into Monty Python like a couple of years after Graham Chapman died because it would have been like junior year of high school for me. So we're pretty similar to the time Mike got into it just a little later. Hmm. Yeah, I was fortunate enough because of my father to like watch these movies as they were released. Remember that would have been cool. Yeah, that would be see these in the theater would have been a lot of fun. Exactly. I mean, we, we I saw the first time I saw uh, Holy Grail was in a movie theater. What were you going to say, Mike? Sorry. I was say I watched Holy Grail with my mom and got it from the video store brought it back sat down watched it with her i remember at the at the very end of it the credits you know the end thing rolls the tape goes off then she just looks at me and she goes what just happened and i was like that was the best reaction to that movie i've ever seen <laughs> i'm just completely like, i was laughing at it now you know with the cop-out ending yeah um so yeah uh, for, do you guys know about the origin story of them how they how they yeah. got together or anything oh yeah i, I watched it all Do enlighten, enlighten us, sir. No, I mean, go ahead, Joel, if you want to talk about it. Oh, I was going to say I watched all the documentaries when they hit yeah. um, Netflix, and uh, it was it was really just kind of a happenstance because they were all doing their own individual things, which they all kind of relate back to a radio program that was around at the time called The Goon Show, and they all kind of gravitated towards this show that was kind of um, different for British humor. It was kind of off the wall. It was absurd. It was it was bizarre and you know um then they all kind of went off to do their thing that was a, it was a big peter sellers show the goon show well, oh yeah yeah um and so each of them started doing their individual thing and then one by one they started kind of collecting <laughs> uh into you know individual groups and then eventually um got put together to go pitch the show for the bbc in which they didn't have any um real um, they didn't have anything really to to present, and for some reason the BBC's like, "All right, here's some money, go make some episodes." Um, yeah, they, they had written a few little things here and there that had gotten you know some time on whatever show here and there. Like Chapman and Cleese were writing partners, kind of. They'd done a few things together, and Eric Idle and Terry Jones and Michael Palin had done some things together. And when when they were kind of approached to do something. It's kind of funny that uh, Cleese was like, well, I really liked working with Michael Palin. So he contacted him and said, hey, do you want to join me and Chapman? And he's like, well, I got these other guys I'm working with. Can they come along? He's like, okay. 
And then Terry Jones was like, well, I did this thing with, with a guy earlier. He can add some cartoons in there. And they're like, all right. And that's how they got Terry Gilliam. Yeah. And they just all got together and like, okay, well, let's try to make something. <laughs> and I, if I remember correctly, and I, I watched the documentaries I watched when they first hit Netflix, you know, about a month ago before we initially had agreed to do the show. And um, I think it was, it was Cleese and Idol that didn't like each other initially, if I remember correctly, or was it? Yeah, Cleese you're right. Chapman. No, no, Chapman and Cleese were, were actual friends. Oh, Chapman and Cleese were friends up until about the Holy Grail. And yeah. Graham Chapman started having some real problems with uh, alcoholism at that time. Yeah. And it was getting hard for him to actually perform, and the guys were getting really worried about him, that sort of thing. Well, liter- so. Yeah, literally in between sh- takes, he's having, you know, DT shakes and stuff. And, yeah. You know. When they hadn't even realized initially how bad it was um, until his partner, you know, kind of uh, alluded to it because, uh, you know, he had been with the same guy for years. Um, but yeah, then when they saw it and they realized what was going on, it was, it was bad. It was really bad. Um, which is unfortunate, but everybody's got their thing, right? Their crutch, their Achilles heel, as it were. Mine is cognac swords and methamphetamines. (laughs) Some of us are trying to figure out how to use more than two crutches at once. (laughs) And I just have a full stretcher. (laughs) So, uh, we we put down some of the widely known sketches from Monty Python and the Holy Monty Python's Flying well, Circus. Quick, quick, before oh, we move on to that, let's talk about the the writers because obviously these those six guys wrote majority of their stuff, but um, the the quote unquote seventh member of Python, uh, Neil Ennis, wrote a bunch of stuff with him too, especially he, a lot of the the lyrical stuff. Yeah, he he was a songwriter for the team, and then also uh, Douglas Adams of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy fame was a writer for them also. So. Which is why Josh was saying that he strangely knew Douglas Adams before he knew Python. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think Eric Idle and, and um, Ennis are still writing music together, aren't they? Yeah. Isn't that his partner now that they that's all they do is – I mean, that's primarily what his focus is these days, but I think they're still together. Um, and don't forget um, Connie Booth. Yes. <clears throat> uh, she was the female Python. Uh, one of the – they would bring in – fem- And Carol. Carol. Yeah, Carol Cleveland. Yeah, Carol, yeah, Carol Cleveland. Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would bring in women whenever they needed an attractive for attractive female. Otherwise, they would just dress up. Right, with their Cockney accents. Yeah, and uh, Carol Cleveland, she was on a couple episodes of uh, Flying Circus, and they just wanted to bring her back completely because she was actually one of the few people that would, you know, hey, we're going to strap you to this big fake uh, hot air balloon and float you around. That sort of thing. Yeah, that, she was that, that was like, one of the things they loved about her was she was a game for anything. Yeah, she's like, all right, cool, let's do that then. You know, so she uh, she was actually still and she was on the uh, the special that's on Netflix right now. So she's still and that's around. One of the 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 things I love about fem- female comedians is that if if you're attractive and also willing to make a complete ass of yourself, it makes it that much more funny. Um, same thing with guys. I mean, you know, when you see George Clooney, who's this kind of debonair Cary Grant kind of guy. And then all of a sudden he's doing, you know, uh, Oh Brother, We're Out There, where he's just kind of this almost slapsticky humor. Um, it just and makes I, it that much funnier. Yeah, it's like one of the things that makes Julia Louis-Dreyfus funny is that she's so beautiful, but she's always willing to, like, ugly herself up. But Carol Cleveland was the same way. I mean, you know, she's very attractive, kind of hourglass figure, buxom blonde, yet she was willing to <laughs> do whatever. Put a, put a to get her out. on her nose, you know, yeah. so on and so forth. Yeah. 
So yeah, so those are the, there are the players, the uh, Holy Grail. I'm gonna, I keep saying Holy Grail. Uh, Flying Circus uh, launched in uh, uh, what did you say, Joel? Was that October? October fifth, nineteen sixty nine. October fifth, nineteen sixty nine, to pretty much mass confusion from the Brits. Yeah. Uh, they were known for the creating the um, the cold open. That's what it's called. That, that's that's the funny thing about about them now, because like now it, it's almost considered quintessential British humor. You know, everybody points to Monty Python, but when they first premiered, yeah, that was not widely received well. Yeah, they were like, yeah. "What the hell is this?" Yeah, it's not the typical dry, very witty. I mean, there's some witty stuff, and you do get some of that dry comedy, but all the zany, madcap, absurdist stuff is what kind of solidified them in their own kind of voice. Mm-hmm. Right, because all the, the, the kids, the college kids, the high school kids that saw it, you know, would talk about it in amongst themselves, and they're kind of like, this is different. You know, this and is the, something yeah, that speaks fourth, to us. The fourth wall breaking, you know, was, was new. Mm-hmm. Well, and then, like I said, the uh, the open with the It's Man. <laughs> you know, and they would do stuff like they would show the opening credits and then immediately follow them with the closing credits. <laughs> you know, they would show the opening credits halfway through. They would do, I mean, they would really mess with the audience in, into the point of where they would even like, they did the old thing where they would, as the show would go on playing live, they would lower the audio levels little by little as the show went on and people would turn it up, turn it up, turn it up, turn it up. And then they cut to commercial and brrr, and blow everybody out. Um, like, like British Andy Kaufman's. Yeah, pretty much. And also the other part of it was the, uh, I guess guerrilla filming that they would do. Oh yeah. There's so many times where they're out in the middle of Trafalgar Square, all dressed as women running around pretending to be gangers, which is one of my favorite sketches. <laughs> um, <laughs> I like the reenactment of Pearl Harbor. That well, one yes. is a riot too. Um but they would just, you know, throw on the clothes, grab a camera, head out there, film this stuff, run back to the studio and finish it up. And it became kind of a thing where they were it, they they weren't really the town wasn't exactly certain what the hell was going on you know there's all these guys dressed or the guy or him doing uh, the Ministry of Silly Walks down the middle of the street you know it it became like a cultural thing when they had no idea what was happening with them and then then the show came on and they would do stuff like in the middle of a, a sketch about cannibalizing your dead mother they play hail uh, uh, God save the Queen so they have to stop everything and stand up you know and that it, it's really really enjoyed messing with people was like their central focus on these things. Yes. True. <laughs> True. So you were going to dive into some of the sketches. Yes. So naturally dead parrot sketch. I is, think that's the one everybody. Well, that and the next one you're going to mention, like it's kind of when you boil down Python into its purest form, as far as the TV show goes, the, the dead parrot sketch kind of sums up. Yeah. A lot of it. If you don't know this one, this is uh, John Cleese and Michael Palin going. Mike, uh, John Cleese going into a pet store to return a Norwegian blue parrot to the shopkeeper that uh, unfortunately dropped dead as soon as he brought it home. Beautiful plumage. Plumage don't enter into it. Uh, <laughs> well, it's implied that it was already dead. It was nailed to the bleeding perch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just the, it's the. This is one of the sketches where you see the perfect timing between these guys so you can really tell that these they i mean not as much to practice but they knew how to read each other amazingly well well and one of the reasons that that uh 
uh, or one of the things they did to write this, Cleese went and he grabbed a, uh, like a thesaurus and was just looking up, you know, different ways to say something's dead. And it just became this ongoing thing, you know, where, you know, it's, it's bleeding demise. It's uh, called to meet the choir infernal. No, yeah. Uh, just join the choir invisible. <laughs> it's an ex parrot. Yeah. I just, he was just, well, I better replace it, it then. <laughs> and it worked, you know, cause it, 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 it wasn't just that they kept saying, Oh, it's dead. You know, it was all these funny little ways of saying it that carried it forward. Well, and then, and, and just the Michael Palin character, just taking it so far, just, it's completely obvious. This thing is dead and he just won't admit it. Right. They said it was based off car dealers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But um, there's one live version where they played a prank on Cleese. They started the whole parrot bit. He walked in. The first thing out of his mouth was, you know, I wish to complain you know, about a, the purchase of a dead parrot. And Palin just looks in the cage and goes, oh, all right. And he goes into the register, hands him the money. He goes, there you go. And walks off stage. <laughs> <laughs> and Cleese just standing there and he's looking at the audience and he's looking around and he just goes, well, I guess a lot of things are changing ever with Margaret. <laughs> and he walks off stage himself. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been awesome to see. Right. <laughs> and yeah, so the dead parrot sketch. And then the Lumberjack song. Um, <laughs> I thought you were so badly. Yeah, I thought you were so rugged. Oh, oh rugged. Dennis. Um, <laughs> Butch. Well, they said Whatever. Yeah, yeah, they changed it up. Yeah. 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 They really are different. They've, they've done it several different ways. Yeah, yeah uh, most of these big sketches were done several times uh, for not only Monty Python's Flying Circus, but they refilmed some of them for now for something completely different. Mm-hmm. And some of the wording's different between the versions. Which, that was the way that the American production was like, okay, we're going to introduce you to America, let's make a movie of all your best sketches. Which kind of worked, but kind of didn't. Um, but this this particular bit opens with them at the the barber shop and where the guy is pretending to cut the guy's hair michael palin is pretending to cut uh i think it's terry jones um to cut his hair and he plays a tape recorder that's pre-recorded with <laughs> scissor sounds and conversation and the, the best part is when, when he asks him to repeat himself and he does in the recording <laughs> right <laughs> and then once he gets found out of course palin goes into the the bit about how i never really wanted to be a a barber i wanted to to you know be a lumberjack and jumping sudden, from tree to tree <laughs> they my cut best gal by my side and i sing 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 no uh, i mean just and again it's uh, just going back to that absurdity of them i mean it's i mean uh lavish musical numbers and cross-dressing are a lot of flying circus mm-hmm. <laughs> yes so yeah so that's the lumberjack song the other one we put on for must know is spam not only did it was it a ridiculous uh, trip to the diner and with vikings but it actually has one of the things from monty python that had cultural significance to it and has actually reason we call spam email spam is because of these guys I'm, the the fact that uh, uh, there's Vikings in there that start to sing is just completely absurd. If not for the sketch, I would not have gotten really, really into spam. Like <laughs> end of high school, beginning of college. <laughs> I think I still have my spam can from college. I bet it's still good. Oh, no, no it, it was empty. empty. It was, yeah, oh. I was using it as a pipe tap out. Oh. Yeah, it's just like a catch-all storage sort of universal purpose type thing. I remember the first time I saw that, saw the spam sketch, and it was one of those where I see him walk in, 
I don't know. They didn't walk in. They were lowered in. Yes, they lowered in. Lowered in, in on, from on. the ceiling, from a winch, into a this, this diner set that's just filled with Vikings. And I remember thinking to myself, "All right, let's <laughs> see where this goes." <laughs> and it, I mean, it's one of those. I don't want to say ear earbugs, but it just sticks in your head as being so ridiculous. Can I have spam, spam, eggs, bacon, and spam? It's not got much spam in it. Can I have it just without spam? You mean spam, 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 spam. And then they all kick in. If you have not seen this, it's all on Netflix. And I cannot even begin to think that any one of our listeners may have not seen Monty Python. Yeah. I I don't think you would have come to us and listened to us as long as you have if you weren't already a Python fan. Nudge, nudge, know what I mean? Hey, Mm -hmm. hey, say no more, say no more. Leading into the next one, nudge, nudge. This one is uh, Terry Jones, uh, who, by the way, was one of the uh, Python that was more than likely to get naked. <laughs> yep. <laughs> naked a lot. That is he, for sure. He did. He was he was the uh, the, the organ pipe, player, <laughs> the naked organist, and he also did. It's a man's life taking off his clothes in the Navy. Uh, there was one sketch where he keeps trying to put on the bathing suit, and they chase him down. And he winds up on stage and winds up doing a strip tease. So, but it's uh, Terry Jones and Eric Geidel doing the, your wife, she's a goer. Uh-huh. Well, she sometimes goes, yes. But Does still. she like candid photography? <laughs> yeah, just the a constant, really awkward sexual innuendo with the Squire character just not understanding what he's talking about mm-hmm. until the very end. <laughs> yeah. You've been with the lady. <laughs> yeah, I have. What's it That's like? <laughs> That reminds me of, uh, before we jump to the next one, um, one of my favorite bits that happened in, in Python was where um, it's, I want to say, Eric Idle and John Cleese, and Cleese is playing a, a policeman, and Eric Idle's asking him about something, and then at the very end, they're standing there awkwardly just kind of looking around, and he's like, would you like to go back to my place? <laughs> he's like, oh, oh I never ask. Yeah, and they leave. I'm just like, okay, what the hell just happened? I love this. <laughs> I fell in love at that part. It was just, I don't know. That was just brilliant. Mm-hmm. Then uh, past nudge, nudge, put the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> I didn't expect that. <laughs> no one Nobody expects, expects the Spanish, Spanish Inquisition. Inquisition. <laughs> oh, weapons are fierce. Among- Surprise. <laughs> Amongst our weapons, weapons are... <laughs> and almost fanatical devotion to the Pope. Wait, no, start it again. Colonel Biggles, you'll have to do it. <laughs> yeah, Colonel uh, Jimenez, Biggles, and Fang. <laughs> oh. And the the look on Terry Gilliam's face throughout that whole sketch just makes me giggle all by itself. Oh, his Biggles? Yeah. It, it, no, it, Gilliam's was, Fang. I thought Terry Jones was Fang. No, uh, Terry Jones is Biggles. Hundred percent. Oh, oh okay. that was always that was always one of my father's and my favorite lines was poke her with the soft cushions. <laughs> Put her in the, the, comfy, the comfy chair. chair. But yeah, this, again, another one of those ridiculous ones. I'd, nobody ever told me what to say. All they said was, come and say there's trouble at the mill. I didn't expect any sort of Spanish Inquisition. And the the transition between the sketches in this is because Monty Python as a whole, they hated punchlines. Mm-hmm. They would not, they hated having a sketch with a punchline like, like Lo, uh, Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. You know, for the American side of the humor, there were two shows that were going almost uh, in sync. You could see the difference between the two kinds of humor. Rowan and Martin's Laughing had a sketch with a punchline, moved to the next sketch. You watch watch uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus, you didn't know what the hell was going on. And they just would just 
quit a sketch just you know because they they just didn't want to be bothered coming up with a punchline. They're yeah. like, fuck it, we'll just end it with some kind of surreal cutaway and or Graham Chapman coming in as a as a colonel telling everybody that they're being too silly. That's, yeah. that's, that's too silly. <laughs> And it just and it, and it just didn't matter that 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 didn't matter, you know. Well, they, mm-hmm. Or they would use uh, Gilliam's um, cartoons as a segue. Yeah, because you could do pretty much anything you wanted in the cartoon, and sometimes uh, it gave but you. But Im- Im- imagine, like as a writer, how much that frees up your comedy because you're, oh, yeah. you don't have the pressure of making sure everything has like a wrapped up punchline ending. You could just write the funny, and then when you're out of the funny, just get out of the fucking skit. <laughs> Well, yeah, look mm-hmm. at look at sitcoms you were talking about earlier with the Goldbergs. I mean, how many sitcoms suffer from, you know, what's the joke? And, you know, you're always waiting for that punchline. So you have the canned laughter here. It's like, OK, well, it's not funny anymore. Let's figure out a way to just, you know, let's shoot everybody or whatever, you know, just end it and move on to the next thing. And, yeah, it made it brilliant. And that, that's part of their brilliance. And that's part of what they the, the newness that they brought to comedy mm-hmm. was that, you know, it's not necessary to to just, you know, Right to a punchline. Just right till you're out of funny. That's all. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes not even that. Sometimes, you know, you're at the height of funny and you're like, you know, we're going to move on to the next thing before you have a chance to catch your breath. Right. So one of the other ones that is, I want to say it's a little bit less known, upper class twit of the year um, is is one of them that was filmed where they would do it like all outside, where they would do that that gorilla filming sort of thing uh the another one that has a very similar uh the same style is the uh, philosopher's soccer game oh my god <laughs> oh yeah they're just walking around scratching their heads <laughs> pontificating mm-hmm. uh, for me upper class twitter of the year is one of my personal favorites period yeah for sure it's just it's just so ridiculous and so it's fun to make the face and the wave that the one guy does you know the john cleese character the the buck teeth and like his arm raised up and he's just flapping his wrist. <laughs> <laughs> and what's brilliant about it is that it seems so simple. You know, what they're doing is just completely just kind of dumb and, and slapsticky, but there's a lot going on there. Uh, as far as what kind of the subsect subtext is and what they're actually saying along with kind of the, they're, they're her, her, kind of funny. It just, it's, it's brilliantly crafted. It's hilarious. Well, and this is also lays into a little bit about, their attitude towards I don't know, the, the culture or Great Britain and that sort of thing is they're definitely the precursor to uh, like South Park. They're just like, well, we're just going to cover all our bases. We'll just insult everybody and then no one can really be mad. Yeah. You know, they're, I mean, they're, they they go on about the Church of England. They go on about the upper class side. They go on about uh, Catholic Church, you know, n- a never be rude to an Arab. You know, there's... <laughs> yeah. Never. Yeah, they just offend everyone. And I mean, that's the that's, that's the thing, and that's what makes them, you know, honestly, so funny is because they're so they're, irreverent. There's no, they're, uh, they're they're firm believers, and there's no sacred cow. Right, right. And that was also part of the thing with the way with um, John Cleese and his writing and working with him that the rest of the team actually said it's kind of hard to work with him because he doesn't care if people like him or not. So he would write these things and do these sketches, and he was just kind of like, yeah, whatever, this is what we're doing. And he had no care in the world about whether or not you know, people liked him, so he would he was a pretty much offensive to everybody. Plus, his, his attitude was, you know, if you don't like it, fuck off. Whatever, don't watch it. <laughs> right, and, and that, I mean, it carries forth all the way to now. I mean, he bought his neighbor's houses. 
I mean, he didn't tear them down. He bought his neighbor's houses, and you have to, in order to, if you want to move into one of the houses that's next door to John Cleese, you have to get interviewed by John Cleese, and then he'll decide whether or not he's going to sell the sell the house to you. I think I'm going to make an offer on it just so I can meet him. <laughs> I think you have to actually have the money. Oh, uh, I think you but, found a you found a hole in my plan. Well, that's one of the other things that that um, makes a show brilliant is that they're all very well read, intelligent guys. Um, and so, you know, they, they could do the, the dumbed down kind of, uh, physical comedy, but then they could also do, uh, you know, the intelligent commentary on whatever was going on at the time, um, and make it all work. So no matter who's watching it, you're getting something out of it that you're enjoying. And then sometimes there's boobs. I will admit they they can make, they can make jokes about philosophers and they can make jokes about sperm. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, that. Or jokes about Beowulf or, or whatever. Beans. Yeah. More yeah, like, beans. They could be they could be as as intellectual or as you know just completely you know toilet humors as they want. And I won't lie. I this sounds goofy, but I learned a lot from Money Python. Yeah. The philosopher's song. I'm like, all right. I know. I know some of those names. I got to look up the rest of them just to see what you know. I didn't know who Emmanuel Kant was until I heard that song, and I'm like, maybe I should look this up. He was a real pissant. Was very rarely stable, <laughs> but yeah, they. I mean, they have a very intellectual style to their comedy, even even in their toilet humor. Yep. So these, uh, these, I mean, these are Ivy League guys, you know, from Oxford and Harvard and shit. You know, I mean, they, yeah, they're smart, man. Well, wasn't Graham Chapman going to be a doctor originally? I think. I believe. I believe so. I think I, it was Chapman, if I remember correctly. So, so yeah, I mean, they're they're not they're not dummies. No. These, yeah. No, you don't. Do something that's popular for fifty plus years or forty plus years by uh, being stupid. But uh, next next sketch, cheese shop. Um, <laughs> that's probably my favorite Monty Python skit. <laughs> yeah, in shop. a lot of ways, this one is similar to the dead parrot sketch. You got the same pair of guys playing the same customer and shopkeeper, but uh, this one just goes even more absurd in in some ways it's the same kind of humor. Cause instead of having different ways to say dead parrot, you've got all these different and frequently uh, outlandish types of cheese. Venezuelan of beaver cheese. Beaver cheese. <laughs> Cheddar. Nope. Not much coal. Not <laughs> much coal. <laughs> the single most popular cheese in the world. Not around here. <laughs> what is perchance the most popular cheese in the world? He yeah. asked. <laughs> Ilchester. <laughs> Is it? He. <laughs> oh yes, quite popular. <laughs> Do you have any? He says, expecting the answer, no. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, look. And the best is like, and his responses and looking for the cheeses after so many no's in a row. Do that. Mm, no. <laughs> and when they finally find one, it's quite runny, runny, sir. <laughs> That's the brie. <laughs> Runnier than you'd like. I don't care oh, how I... fucking runny it is. Fetch it at all speed. Oh, oh the cat's eating cat's it. Eaten. Has she? He, sir. He, sir. <laughs> Wensleydale? Yes. Oh, oh, then I'll have that. Oh, no, no. I'm sorry. I thought you were talking to me. That's my name. Arthur Wensleydale. That's, and see, that's the thing. It's like, these are such, they stick in your head. I mean, we, I had um, bought the, back in the 80s, when they had the double cassette pack of all these Monty Python sketches that we would listen to when we go on family road trips. Uh, again, I learned about Monty Python. Hey, I bought these cassettes. We're going to go on a road trip. Let's, let's listen to these 
I brought you know, let's listen to these and we'll well we don't have a great time laugh we don't we're all the way wherever we're going together. My mom takes the cassettes, pops one in, first thing that pops up. Do we have any guesses? Every sperm is sacred? Close. Always look on the bright side of life? Nope. Josh? Sit on my face? Sit on my face. Oh, that's a good guess. <laughs> so sit on my face is the first thing that comes out of the speakers, and she just looks at me and she's like, What? I'm like <laughs> it this isn't their best stuff. This isn't the best. It's going to get better. And just like that, it I mean, the rest of my family just took off with it. Once they, cause I think after that was uh, Finland, the oh, yes. Finland song. So uh, after Cheese Shop. The country where I want to be. Quite a long way from China. Not too far Finland, from Finland. Japan. Yeah, so a uh, quick aside is um, I think possibly all of us are on the same boat with this. But, like, I always thought that all nerds had this like deep love and knowledge and wealth of knowledge of Monty Python. I just thought that was like an across the board thing until we ran into the other nerds from the other podcast that challenged us to a, to a game. And we played a Monty Python themed game and we just, for lack of a better word, just destroyed them. We played Monty Python flux. And that was the first time I was like, all nerds don't love these guys like yeah. this. <laughs> and it might be a generational thing because I think those guys are younger. They are younger than us. Um, but yeah, they, we played. I, I, my, I, I think the best comment of that night was where we would be able to play an extra card or draw an extra card if we can sing a song and then sing a Monty Python song. And if it was a Monty Python song that had not been sung before, then we got to draw two cards. And they're like, you guys just kept coming up with songs. Yeah, we had no idea. Sh- they were done. Yeah. <laughs> So, but yeah, no, I mean, and that's the thing is like in generate you are, I think you're right, Josh. It is a generational thing is that maybe that's what the big problem was. Yeah. Maybe we, if we played another team that was our age, it would. Yeah. If you were a child of the eighties and a teenager in the nineties, I think you couldn't have avoided Python if you were a geek. Right. And that's kind of how I felt everybody was, you know, but I guess it makes sense that, you know, I just thought that they were cultural staples in our nerd life. That's all. They're subpar. <laughs> oh, they probably don't we know they might be nerds. That's mean. So I said it. And the last one I have in here is the Ministry of Silly Walks, where you discover how tall John Cleese actually is. <laughs> <laughs> Although I would have said the Argument Clinic might have been more popular than the Minister of Silly Walks. I don't know. Because he said he used to get like just constantly people trying to get him to do it. Mm-hmm. And and it's to, it got to the point where he's like, I'm not ever going to do that again. But yeah, those long, long, lean legs, man. Yeah, and his ability to—I mean, they were all pretty physical in in their comedy, and he had some great ways to. You know, he he was very his physical nimble. humor was very good. Yeah, yeah, limber. Yeah, for sure, especially at that age. Like you, you could see how uh, Jim Carrey was probably influenced by him and a lot of his physicality. Mm-hmm. I could see that. I've got the Finland song stuck in my head. Me too. (laughs) So let's do a quick rundown on the movies. All right. So Monty Python and the Holy Grail, 1975, is a retelling of, uh, obviously, the the King Arthur and the Holy Grail with uh, Gilliam playing King Arthur and all the other ones playing different. Chapman. No, Chapman. I'm sorry. Graham Chapman. Yeah. Gilliam was uh, Patsy. Correct. Directed by Jones and Gilliam. Yes. Um, something that was kind of crazy. It was filmed on location in uh, in Scotland with a budget of two hundred and twenty nine thousand British pounds sterling. Money was raised in parts with investment from rock groups. 
such mm-hmm. as The Who, Pink Floyd, Jethro Tull, Led Zeppelin, The Who. Uh, I think George Harrison chipped in to create handmade. George, uh, George Harrison paid for all of Life of Brian. Yes. He paid for the whole thing. And he actually has a cameo in there, too. So, but yeah, this is this was my big intro to. My as, as it is most people's. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I'm pretty sure I saw this before I saw any Flying Circus. And this was the first direct directorial debut of uh, Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam also. And the, the fact that the two of them were directing it separately created a lot of problems on set because one would, would, would make a decision one way and then the other would come and turn it around a different way. And they constantly were like filming the scenes over and over because one would want it one way and one would want it the other way. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to be they, they, they did things separately, but they kept stepping over each other's toes all the time. Well, yeah. because Gilliam was such a stickler for <clears throat> everything just had to be just so. So they told some stories on um, uh, one of the documentary things where, you know, if he got through this whole scene and everything was perfect and they were happy, everything it was like the fifth or sixth time they'd done it and it was dead on. And he's like, uh, there wasn't enough fog from the fog machine, so we're going to do it again. Yep. And it's just like, you know. That was, that was the scene where um, where Eric Idle finally snapped. They, they said it was the first time anybody had ever seen him lose his temper because he was playing the, the dirt eater or the mud eater in that oh, scene. Oh, the constitutional peasant. Yeah. And like they had an area that was set that was all chocolate, but there was real mud all around it. And every time they filmed, he kept losing track of where the chocolate was and where the mud was. And he kept sometimes eating mud and he was getting so mad. And every single time that Gilliam required a reshoot, he ate, he ate more. And finally, they said, you know, first time anybody ever saw Eric Idle get mad. Wow. <laughs> well, and um, they said. I, oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to finish it real quick because I, I watched this with the commentary on. So I learned a lot of interesting stuff. But John Cleese said, um, and the best part about it was in the final shot, you don't even see him in the, in the scene. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You could like barely see the top of his head. Well, and they talked about how you can tell the different who's directing the scene based on how it looks, um, you know, because Terry Gilliam was an artist initially and so you know his shots are very you know artistic and this and so you know they said it was one of their best looking films out of all of them just because you know they both kind of put in their inputs and they've got those those shots mixed with terry jones who is more focused on the the actors and the the comedy part of it Excellent. So then you got their follow-up, which would be uh, 79's Life of Brian, which kind of grew out of a stock answer they'd give to reporters who are bothering them about what the next movie was going to be. Because Idol would uh, tell them, well, it's going to be called Jesus Christ, Lust for Glory. (laughs) And uh, yeah, they began thinking about it, uh, thinking about doing a New Testament comedy film. And uh, they decided that they're going to take a, they weren't going to mock Jesus directly. Nothing funnier than religion. (laughs) But uh, the thing is, is they couldn't think of anything legitimate to make fun of about Christ. So they decided to to have this guy who was born one stable over. And the entire time people are trying to call him the Messiah and he doesn't want it. He's not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy. (laughs) Well, and one of the things that kept happening to them was everybody kept claiming it was, you know, heretical and it was, uh, you know, anti-religion and they shouldn't go see it. And the fact is, is that they handled all of the scenes with Jesus in a very respectful manner. They never tweaked his words, never changed any of, you know, what he was saying. 
it was the stuff that was going on outside of that. And and I mean, let's was, be honest, there had to be people on the edge of the crowd, you know, they couldn't hear Jesus during some of you know his sermon on the mount. I mean, yeah. <laughs> like, all the cheesemakers. <laughs> Yeah, I, the older I get, don't get me wrong, I love Holy Grail, but the older I get, the more my personal stock in Life of Brian just increases year by year. Life of Brian is an, is an unusual one. They had some crazy stuff that happened, too. So, you know the scene where uh, Graham Chapman is uh, in, the, in the girl's apartment, and he goes over to the doors, and he opens up the doors, and all those people are standing there waiting for him to tell them what to do? <laughs> okay. So they shot that one, and they basically got a whole bunch of people living in this town out in that area, and they said, here's what's going to happen, is look up at that door, and this guy's going to open. When he comes out, I want you all to cheer for him. So you've got these, uh, let's just say they weren't used to male nudity. (laughs) So when Graham Chapman opened the doors, many females screamed and covered their eyes because he was standing there buck-ass naked. And later on, he was quoted as saying, it doesn't do much for the ego. (laughs) They were like, they ran off, you know, that sort of thing. They screamed and ran away. Uh, I love this movie. This is ridiculously the stoning scene alone where they have all the women dressed up in the fake beards. (laughs) Yeah, and the beard vendor. Mm -hmm. Are there any women here? No, 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 no. And outside of that, what have the Romans ever done for us? No, yeah. there's great sketches in this one. Or the or when he makes them uh, rewrite the graffiti. Oh, yeah. And he has them write it basically a hundred times. Them 100 times, and then he has to go see Bigeth Dicketh. <laughs> and uh, apparently those guys were told that if they laughed, those extras... They were told if they laughed during that scene, they wouldn't get paid, which is, oh, which is why they tried so hard not to laugh. You, is there something funny about my wife's name? <laughs> Biggest dicketh? <laughs> I hope they Romanes got paid. Romanes domus. <laughs> That's the phrase? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know what the thing is that he gives him a whole lesson on, how, on, the, on writing it correctly, and he's correct. <laughs> he's not. He's... He, it's actually legit Roman. They, they, like you said, they're smart. They're making sure if he's doing a Roman lesson, it's going to be correct. So, yeah, <laughs> I love the whole scene when the when the Roman legion goes into the apartment looking for all the <laughs> all the rebels, and they can't find them, and they come all storming back out. Like, oh, you couldn't find them. Huh? And the one sitting there with the basket on her head. <laughs> one guy's literally just standing behind a curtain. That's it. <laughs> oh. Well, and one of the other things that's that's fantastic about their films is that. They're very, very genuine and true to the period as far as what the, the, the set dressings, the uh, you can almost, you know, smell and taste the the scenery. And you look at some of the the actual period pieces of the time, the dramas, and they would stand up right alongside with that. But yet there's this complete absurdity going on amongst all of the reality. Mm-hmm. And it just makes them that much more enjoyable. Well, yeah, especially these two middle films. I mean, you got the bookends. The first one that we didn't even bother talking about, the now for something completely different, because it's just Python sketches Mm -hmm. again. And then the last one, 83's Meaning of Life, which is, again, uh, more like Flying Circus, where you've got a whole bunch of sketches. Right. A whole bunch of sketches. But they're new, at least. Yeah, they're new, and there's not a lot. I mean, the continuity between them is, like, not, not even there. First, we're singing about you know the scene where they're taking the guy's uh, liver because he's an organ donor, 
Oh man, that's violent. That that's that was brutal. a rough scene. But uh, <laughs> speaking of rough scenes, it also gives us the uh, the giant vomiting man. Oh, Mister Creosote. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Like, like, one, 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 one little after dinner mint. What harm could it do? One waffle thin. <laughs> I don't think I can fit another. And that's uh, a, and um, honestly, I think one of my favorite sketches has got to be the uh, salmon moose one. <laughs> it was the salmon moose. <laughs> so, but no, I mean, it's and that's the thing is like they they went back to their absurdist ways in this one, and that this is actually I think it was I think it was oh, Michael pa- up, Michael Palin. Americans, <laughs> let me tell you this, this and let me and tell, you tell you that. <laughs> Sorry. No, no. I think Michael Palin wasn't really pleased with this one. He didn't think this one was their best. No. Best work. And I do have to say, if you take these, I think these are of of all Python movies. These are the big three. Oh, for sure. And I think out of the three, this is the one. Meaning of Life is the one that's going to appeal to the hardcore uh, Python fans. If you're if you're a fan of like spam and you know all the you know the the standard ones. You're going to enjoy Holy Grail. You're going to enjoy Life of Brian. You really got to be into Python to understand. I don't say understand, but just get it on what's happening. Well, I mean, you say that, but you've got like every sperm is sacred is from this. True. Like, yeah, you've got some pretty big songs and some. Yeah, I'm uh, just saying the the non sequitur, the uh, transition makes no sense. You know, there's a lot of a lot going on that. The unless you're with the human faces, right? Uh, unless yeah. and he would follow wherever I would go. Oh my god, I love that one so much. I don't know why. And that's the thing. That scene was just like, what happened? Oh, fishy, 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 fish. Hello, everybody, and welcome to heaven. <laughs> it's Christmas. That's Christmas heaven. You know, and again, watching that with the fam. There you go. Boobs. Why are all their boobs out? Well, they're not real. They're plastic, but you know, hey, whatever. Um, they're still boobs. But no, I think I think that one's a little bit more of a. I don't say a challenge, but a little bit. You have to be a little bit more familiar with the style of Monty Python than in the other two, where they're actually telling a story. This one is just that that non sequitur sketch comedy from end to end. And like you said, very rarely do you get the uh, the punchline. Well, it's it's very it's much more true to their original, you know, flying circus roots mm-hmm. than the linear storytelling. Yeah. So, then, oh, Joel. Oh, I was gonna say, and then they wouldn't go back and do a, you know, another season. Um, they'd already gone through that and uh, ended the last one without Cleese. So. Yeah, he wasn't. He quit right before the last three shows of the second season or the third season. Third. Well, the third season it was they did. They ordered six or eight episodes, and uh, he wasn't a part. Yeah, that's when they changed their name. Where on the on the um, credits, it went from being uh, the whole team by name to being written by Monty Python. Right, because they still had to credit him for stuff he wrote before he stopped as a player. Right, right. So, and it's it, there's still some good stuff there, but it definitely had a different feel. You know, anytime you take one element out of a combination that has tapped into something you kind of lose whatever that thing was in mm-hmm. some regard mm-hmm. um and you know like they've said it themselves they're like we did some of our best work and we did some of our worst work but you know for better or worse it's it's out there and people like it so yeah. sorry i just wanted to mention that before we moved on oh no, for sure no totally 
So, yeah, we're going to take a little break here. Shut up, Joel. <laughs> Jesus. And <laughs> when we come back, we're going to talk about a little bit about what the team is doing now. And uh, talk about Monty Python Live, mostly. One down, five to go. My brain hurts. <laughs> oh, Mr. Gumby. DP Gumby. All right, we are back. And uh, we are talking about Monty Python Live, mostly. One down, five to go. I'm not dead yet. So, 2013, the film producer of Monty Python and the Holy Grail sued the Pythonese for royalties over Spamalot, which was the uh, Holy Grail uh, musical. That Eric which I saw. Yes. I heard it was good. Yeah, I it was unfortunately haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Um, they owed a combined 800,000 pounds sterling in legal fees back to royalties to Forrester. So they proposed doing a reunion show to pay their bill. Uh, oh, you, you, okay. Never mind, what? Sorry. Oh. You, you have the fact in here that I was going to blow your minds with about South Park. So never mind. Go oh. on. Um, so the original plan was for a one-off stage show at the O2 Arena in London with some of the greatest hits, some modern topical Python X twists to it. According to a press release, it was going to be kind of like them updating some of their sketches, doing some old classic stuff with some uh, tips of the hat to Graham Chapman mixed in there. Uh, they went on sale in November of 2013, and the entire thing sold out in 43 seconds. Jesus yep. Christ. O2 is not a small arena. 16,000 people. Yes. That's more than was that. That's like three times the amount that was at that baseball game that we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. A lot of asses and seats for 40, 43 seconds, did you say? 43 seconds and completely sold out. Uh, nine additional shows were then added because they're like, I think people want to see this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Those sold out in a minute. Right. All and uh, they also had said, is what, Pat, Pat, do you want to deliver your trivia? Uh, he said not to throw to him. You okay. do this every time he says uh, not God to. God damn it. <laughs> Patrick. He's uh, not here. <laughs> what he wanted to say was that uh, the reunion was inspired by South Park creators Trey Parker and Matt Stone, who unsurprisingly are not, uh, I mean, are huge Monty Python fans. Oh, yeah. So uh, Michael Palin also stated that this is the final reunion show and the last time that the troupe would perform together. Uh, and it was, you know, recorded and re-shown, and now it's currently playing on Netflix. Yep. Yeah, there was uh, some other interesting things about this. Uh, apparently, at the time... Uh, Robin Williams was offered the cameo in the blackmail sketch and declined. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. I wonder why. I, I don't know. I, but uh, yeah, that was uh, that secret cameo that was Michael Myers. Yeah. That was well, Michael Myers and um, Mike Myers. Yeah. Mike Myers. And uh, I just lost his name. The comedian was Eddie answered. Eddie oh Izzard. yeah, Eddie yeah. Izzard was, was in. Yeah, Jack Black showed up. Um, a lot of the guys that they did in the um, uh, another net thing that's on Netflix, the the uh, best bits, I think it was what it was called, where they had uh, celebrities 
interviewed and they talked about their their favorite Monty Python sketches. Mm-hmm. There, there's all, a, there's a couple of things on Netflix that are like Monty Python's best of. Well, the but, Monty Python's best of those were actually TV shows that were created by the BBC um, back in I want to say the later 70s as uh, uh, almost trying to bring back the the uh, um, flying circus stuff because it was like oh here's it's almost like when you have the Saturday Night Live best of John Belushi is what those are. Okay. Um, the blackmail sketch also had a different person underneath the bag for each of the ten shows. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, it was cool. Stephen Fry, then Lee Mack, Bill Bailey, Noel Fielding, Matt Lucas, Warwick Davis, Simon Pegg, David Walliams, Eddie Izzard, and then Mike Myers. And <laughs> the, then, Warwick, the Warwick Davis one had to have been pretty funny. Well, and if you guys noticed, uh, the recorded one is the final show. <clears throat> and they had uh, Warwick Davis and Lee Mack. And, of course, Eddie Izzard, who had a second cameo in that final one, all come back for uh, on stage at the end of the show. Mm-hmm. And all of those guys were ones that were featured in that special, uh, oddly enough. Hmm. Yeah. So if you ever want to see, you know, your favorite comedians or whatnot talking about their, you know, their favorite bits from Monty Python and their their kind of history with it, um, that's, that's definitely the one to watch. Um, it, it was a lot of fun, but yeah, side note. Nice. So uh, in watching this, I had is this has anybody seen this before at all? This is my no. first viewing. Yeah. 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 Um, they still got it. <laughs> it's it was uh, re I don't say rehashing, but like some there were some of the like the philosophers football match was on this. Uh, Bruce's philosophers song. They came back out again, did their standard, having the entire entire uh, crowd sing along with him while they threw giant stuffed uh, uh, python beer cans out to yeah, everybody. Cans of Fosters. Yeah, but they, they said py, or, uh, pythons on the side. Yeah, uh, but um, they, <laughs> I was what I was really impressed with was the singing. Yeah, they went to big ass show numbers. The, like every sperm really? is sacred was ridiculous. Like the giant candy cane penis cannons that came, they brought out. Yeah, the, sit on my face was a little bit too long. Like the ex, the extra verse they wrote and everything about sit on my bum and all that kind of. You know, oh, with the royal Na- with the royal dogging on the royal navy. Yeah, and everything. I was like, all right, it's a little much. I, you know. Oh, that was for. Uh, isn't it awfully nice to have a penis? That's what yes. it was. Yeah, okay. that, that one. I thought it, I thought that went on a little bit too much. I don't know. I I kind of enjoyed it because I thought they had a nice balance between the stuff you all want to see, and then allowing the guys who are getting up in age to do their costume changes by putting some classic stuff that was pre-recorded and animated sequences and then updating some of those classic sketches to show us something we'd never seen before. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't all just stuff we'd seen from flying circus. Yeah. It was, a, it was a blend of, of things. So you got that, that taste of nostalgia, mm-hmm. but then you got something new to walk away from it and go, Oh yeah, you know, that was fun. Remember that part that, you know, whatever. But I agree. I, that one particular song, out of all of them, did run on just a hair longer. That, that was the only one that kind of took me out of the whole thing. Just hmm. a bit. Um, and I like how they also incorporated Chapman into it um, and and did it in a way that didn't feel phony to me. Um, it felt genuine. And then when they 
did um, Christmas in Heaven, and they segued from the meaning of life to, you know, the guy that was playing that part for the stage so they could, you know, translate from the screen to the, the stage performance was kind of neat. Yeah. And the well, guy, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. I was going to say the guy that they had dressed up, supposed to be playing Graham Chapman. They got pretty close in look. Yeah. He was a younger guy. Samuel Holmes, uh, basically played every part where they required a stand in. Okay. Yeah, at first I was like, who the hell is that dude in the uh, kangaroo costume? And I noticed, oh, he just keeps coming back over and over again. And after three or four sketches, I was like, wait a minute. He's taking the Graham Chapman part in all of these classic sketches. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I did love about this, though, is finally seeing John Cleese, Terry Jones, lose it on yeah. stage. Break <laughs> character, especially in Cunt Crunchy Frog. Yeah. When, because there's a uh, uh, when um, Terry Gilliam puts the helmet back on his head with the soup, wherever he pretends to vomit in it, and something John Cleese turns back to him and just breaks character and starts laughing and completely forgets where he's supposed to be in the sketch. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty much one of their one of the things about Cleese was he was the one that very rarely ever broke. Oh yeah, he was he was solid. But no, I mean, of, oh go ahead, Joel. Oh. Uh, one of the things I was going to say that I noticed, um, and I saw it in one of the earlier um, interview like things that they had on Netflix, and I noticed again during this was, um, uh, I don't know if you guys had caught this, but Terry Jones came out that he's got dementia. Oh, I did not and, know that. Yeah, he's he's Neither starting, does he. starting to deteriorate, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> When you see him interview, when you see him in the one interview thing where it's the 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 four of them, and then um, Eric Idle is is in the states, and he's he's on like a live simulcast thing there with him. Uh, there's a couple moments where Terry Jones kind of wanders off, and you can tell that he's not sure what's going on. But here, if you notice, he had cue cards for I, some of it. I did. I noticed that he had the descriptions of all the chocolates written down on the cards. But I think initially I thought that was because they um, uh, that one was originally Graham Chapman that was the owner of uh, the chocolate factory, wasn't it? I was pretty sure it was Jones the first time around. Yeah, I thought it was Jones. Okay. Well, regardless, I mean, you can't expect him to remember lines. Right. Anymore. I mean, that's I'm just glad he was out there. True. Yeah, and that that's the thing. I mean, he he was having a good time and everything, you know, if you didn't know, wouldn't have necessarily even noticed some of that. I mean, you think at that point in their lives and, you know, when's the last time they did that bit, um, it may not be quite like falling off a horse, you know? There were two or three points where I'm pretty sure Michael Palin uh, purposefully uh, took a swerve on the sketch just to get uh, usually Cleese. To mm -hmm. have to react to him. Uh, I believe he did it at one point in the uh, parrot slash cheese shop sketch. Where I noticed that it didn't follow the pattern from any of the recordings I've seen. And there was a reaction from Cleese. He did. He changed up on that. I Honestly, I think it was Michael Palin being like, all right, this is the last time I'm going to chance to do this. Mm hmm. Yes. And I think he definitely he, he fucked with it. Just a little bit, just to um, uh, see what uh, Cleese was going to do. 
yeah. which made it that much more enjoyable for those of us who've seen those, you know, hundreds of times. Yeah, he jumped ahead uh, of he didn't say not much call for it around here with cheddar. He did it with a different cheese and he did it early and you could tell it wasn't a mistake. He was being a bastard. Yeah, which is <laughs> hilarious. So out of these, I mean, it's the okay. I do have to say one of the things that did kind of take me out that kind of threw me was the nudge wrap. That was kind of weird. After the yeah, nudge, nudge. Yeah, it was a little odd. I mean, but I've seen they did that in one other thing before. I've seen that before somewhere. The nudge wrap. Yeah. So it's something they incorporated perhaps in an earlier performance and just carried it on. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I've seen that some seen, seen them do that somewhere. Yeah. And the expanded musical numbers to me felt a lot like Spam a lot. Like they did those expanded musical numbers in a lot of the same ways. They uh, bloated out the content of uh, Holy Grail. It was very much in the same vein. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's why it didn't take me out at all because I'd already seen something similar. Okay. Yeah, I'd never. I haven't seen Spam a lot. So and I regret never seeing it, but uh, but no, it um, <laughs> I think there was enough enough ridiculousness in it, and you can tell that the crowd was a hundred percent in. Oh yeah, I mm-hmm. mean, everybody knew what, and, and that's the thing. It's like they were in the in the. If you look in the crowd, there's guys that had their handkerchiefs tied on their heads, like uh, Mr. Gumby. You know, it's it's really cool because the entire the significance of what is going on was known by the entire audience it wasn't just like this is the last thing you know like you know how many times uh rock bands are like oh yeah, this is the last time we're ever performing together until the next Rolling time we stone. need yeah exactly kiss yeah until we need more money and then we're gonna get back together again you know this one is like you know they did this i'm one of the guys could be dead by the end of this year i mean that's yeah. that's the, the where we're at with these guys i mean they're really getting up there so I think the audience really got that and understood it and then knew that there was kind of like almost a goofball reverence to what was going on. Well, and that final song when he sang uh, um, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life and, uh, you know, all the, the confetti and the balloons and all of them just looking so kind of uh, almost relieved, but in a, in, a, in a, you know, kind of wonderful sense. That, mm-hmm. that they all shared it with this large group of people that all were part of it that got it was just kind of this really nice moment. Um, and then, of course, after they did that encore, when it came up and it said piss off, which was what they always did with yep. their live shows <clears throat> to tell people to go home. <laughs> you know, it's over. We're done. Piss off. Yeah. It's and a I great mean- moment. And I think I, that, that feeling, I mean, it's almost like when we would do a uh, stage play and we would have, we'd do like a two-week run or something and we would have that final show and it would end. And when that, imagine having a, a run of a show that lasted 45 years, you know, where you just got this fandom that follows you around and will come to see you no matter what it is type of thing. It's, you know, that's that's got to be pretty intense for these guys. Yeah, at this point, we'd all have to make it to 80 our mid eighties to do it. <laughs> and we know well, Pat's not living that long. Yeah, take your oh. bets now, folks. I want to be Graham Chapman. Oh. oh. He's oh. already dead. 
Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I, better, I better get on it. Yeah. <laughs> you better get to work, dude. Got a lot of years to make up for. Man, there's a lot of suicide jokes in this show. <laughs> um, yeah. They're also one of the very few comic groups that could get away with something like the updated I Like Chinese. Oh, yeah. Holy crap. <laughs> that was... I mean, there were so many things that I'm just like... I Literally through the entire show that I'm going, only they could get away with this. You know, only they could get away with the, like I like Chinese is probably the 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 peak of what are you gonna do? We're Monty Python. Yeah, it's one of those songs that you would have thought that they might just not have done at all. Not only did they do it, but it had uh, some of the most updates to huh. like how China interacts with the world, and then a whole pretty freaking racist dance number. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh. Yeah, and again. What are you going to do? Yep. <laughs> it's they, you can scream and yell all you want. They don't care. They're Monty Python. This well, is their that, thing. That's that's the thing that just amazed me about watching that special was to think that, you know, here's six guys who are on different paths who ended up inadvertently becoming this troupe that then became this huge influence on just generations of comedians and, and normal people. Um, it just amazes me. Uh, you know, it's one of those kind of things that is only going to happen once in our lifetime that you'll see something like that. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that I had also looked up is some of the, some of the cultural influences that, uh, Monty Python had. We had originally talked about spam, you know, being, uh, uh, for you know, email you don't want is being called spam. That kind of came from that. Some of the other things that they've had is the uh, Python programming language is actually hmm. named after them. There's, there's also... A there's a beetle that's named after John Cleese, I think. Yeah, there is another. There's a uh, uh, snake that's named Pythonesque, Monty Pythonesque something or other that has been uh, also named. I mean, there is, you don't realize outside of just like you know, creating the the uh, soft open, creating all these different type of ways of doing humor that they are, uh, you know, they they've integrated themselves into just everyday stuff. They're they're pop culture. They're part of pop culture. Yeah, I mean, and, and John Cleese is almost uh, instantly recognizable by anybody that is a pop culture fan. Mm hmm. Even more so than all the, all the rest of the the guys, he's he's the he's probably the most recognizable. He's he's the face of Python, essentially, for sure. Oh, uh, okay. Here I found the list. So, spam. We know about that. The Python language, a fossil of a gigantic prehistoric snake, was discovered in Queensland, Australia, and the paleontologist that found it named it Monty Pythonized River Zeisness, in honor of them. Ben and Jerry, of course, has a Monty Vermonty Python. Ice cream, Holy Grail Ale, which I think we've all tasted. Uh, the endangered Bamara woolly lemur is uh, actual name is Avai Cleese, named after John Cleese. <laughs> Geneticists discovered a mutant gene which caused flies to live twice as long as normal ones, and they dubbed it Indy as an acronym for "I'm not dead yet." <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and, of course, the band Toad the Wet Sprocket. Yep. Came from the Rock Note sketch. You know, and that, that when they came out, that blew my mind. When Toad the Wet Sprocket's first song hit the radio, I was like, no, nobody <laughs> would really name themselves. Oh, damn, they did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and too not, bad they weren't more, more popular. Yeah, hey. and they're not, they weren't that bad, but, you know, it's... I love them. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah but... That, they, I'm just saying they weren't very popular. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, you know, oh, do you listen to? I listen to Toad the Wet Sprocket, and everyone's like, yeah. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Again, then there's a divide in the nerddoms, so. But, yeah, I mean, the Monty Python has, they've been a thing for 45 years. You know, it's insane. And they're all very wealthy now. Yes. Deservedly so. Mm-hmm. Everybody doing their own thing. Uh, I know. Uh, um, I was almost say Graham Chapman again. John Cleese doing lots of voiceover work as in the last few years. Well, I, w- I watched a character arc for, uh, this week that he did on Will and Grace. He mar- uh, he courted and ended up marrying uh, the Karen character ma- played by Megan Mullally. Okay. And um, he's you know his character is wealthy and her character is wealthy and there's uh, they're getting ready to fly to Vegas on a private jet. And there's, you know, the the main characters are sitting inside, and then Cleese jumps on the jet with them, starts talking about how every time I fly, I'm always afraid of, you know, and he starts describing all these hor- horrific scenes of uh, death and destruction in a plane crash. And he's like, "Well, let's get this going," and then he gets in the cabin to start, you know, to, to start flying the plane. <laughs> <laughs> well, and what's great about the the whole phenomenon, and I mean, at this point, as of this year, it's 50. I mean, technically, they're not still python but um i mean they're not still performing but uh you know this afforded them the ability to do what they wanted you know cleese has continued on to be again kind of the face of of python and has continued to work um in film and television eric idol's gone on to um primarily write music Mm -hmm. um uh, and spam a lot of course um terry gilliam is taken his love of, of directing and becoming a, a filmmaker. Um, and, you know, Michael Palin travels the world and does um, travel Sir, documentaries. Sir Michael Palin. Oh, is he knighted now? Yep. I miss that. He, and you can genuinely tell that he loves, because that's one of the things that I spent time watching was some of his, his uh, travel documentaries. And you can tell that he genuinely loves what he's doing. And if it wasn't for Python, he, he wouldn't have been able to to do that, I don't think. And fun fact, in 1998, he was filming um, uh, a series about Hemingway's fo- footsteps. Oh. And he shot, he was shooting outside of Val's Hollow when I was working one night um, in front of the store. Cool. I was saving that nugget till the right time. Cool. And what did, did you, you do? Meet? Yeah, did you meet him? No, no. I. I he was surrounded by. So, that, know, so that was the end of the story? Yeah, I could just see him out there. I could I watched as they were filming, so I could That's, see him. Okay, I guess filming. Closer closer to him. Yeah, closer yeah. than the rest of us have gotten. So. Yep. And the story had no punchline, so we're full circle. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so somebody so, added in here the question: Which mo- member of the Monty Python is your favorite? I did. That's a good question. Uh, I. I have to answer the 
easy and obvious John Cleese. Why? I just like his uh, his dry delivery and his wit, and he has he he makes his his deadpan faces just kill me. Uh, for me, it's Eric Idle. I've always had a affinity for uh, musical comedians, and I think I like the characters he plays the best. Yeah, he's my second favorite for those reasons. Uh, my favorite is Michael Palin. Um, he's he's the most affable, and um, I, for some some reason, just his comedic timing and his kind of kind of nice guy attitude towards everything just always kind of spoke to me. And, and he was I, he was great in uh, Fish Called Wanda. He just seems like a guy I want to hang out with, you know. Not that he'd want to know me, but Michael Palin. Yeah, he wasn't in Fish Called Wanda. Yeah, he was. Yes, Eric, he was. Mm-hmm. Eric Idle was, wasn't he? No, no, no. Oh. I'm thinking the wrong thing. Sorry. Yeah, he play, he played Ken the star. Yeah, Ken, come yeah, to yeah. kill me. Okay, lost it. Sorry. Back now. Uh, I like Eric Idle. He's he. I mean, Josh, you. He's the musical. I think his characters are probably. I, I while John Cleese does have a lot of memorable ways of doing them i think eric idol's characters stand out more the nudge nudge guy you know the he's he's got a great um comedic method you know kind of over the top uh but he's he's kind of been the face for monty python for a while now on their youtube page the youtube uh, channel because like well they had an unusual response to people bootlegging their stuff and showing it like you get the Monty Python uh, stuff on YouTube that would have like the border on it. So the uh, copyright infringement wouldn't catch it. Uh, God, about four or five years ago, they were like, all right, fine. And they posted everything. They just started bombing YouTube. They made their own channel and loaded it full of Monty Python stuff. And, they saw, I want to say it was like a 20% upswing in sales of their DVDs after they did that. So, and on that, Eric Idle's been the guy who's been doing a lot of the uh, YouTube face stuff. So, you know, give him some credit for sticking to it and finding a new way to attract more fans. Well, that's one thing that a lot of people don't understand about the online, you know, whatever. They're starting to understand it, but like, you know, the exposure is just as important as the losses you might have. You know, it offsets the losses, is my point. So long as you're big enough, yeah. For yeah, sure. yeah. Yeah, once you reach a certain point, you're not going to get hurt by, you know, online piracy or whatever. Like, Metallica never really had a leg to stand on because they were never going to lose money. Right. So, but yeah. I fought against it tooth and nail. Big old jackasses. <laughs> I still love them. We all still do. Yeah. Still like their stuff. Don't Just because I like their stuff doesn't mean I have to like them. Mm-hmm. Ours. So. Anyway, we're not talking about Metallica. No, we're not. So, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I would hate to think that we're going to have to do a thumbs up, thumbs down on this because I think we're all unabashedly 100% Monty Python fans. Yeah, that one yeah. doesn't even make sense. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, on that note, Joel, what are we doing next week? 
It is time, ladies and gentlemen, for our annual Billboard show. Woo! The show that gives all the uh, flags. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we are going to... Uh, I don't even know what week it's going to be. As we're working uh, ahead. I'll let you know in a couple days. Yeah, Josh is going to choose a week. The, 20, the 20th, the 27th, and then what would be the 3rd after that. 3rd, yeah, whatever February, week it is. February 3rd. Yeah, we're going to take whatever the Billboard Top 10 songs of the week for 2019 are going to be, and we're going to compare them to the mystery year that Josh is going to choose. Correct. So, yeah, so and then we'll do the 10, talk about our, what we think, and I gotta say, a lot of people sometimes think that we're going to be the bunch of old guys saying, ah, oh, new music, we hate it, but uh, historical shows do not... Uh... We're, we're betting at about, like, I think 60-70% like yeah. yeah, I'd say so. Okay. Having heard this year's uh, DJ Airworm pop mashup from uh, the last few months, I, I'm not feeling confident that I'm <laughs> enjoying the very current state of music. But uh, hey, if you have an opinion on that or if you want to yell at us because we left out your favorite Python sketch or we didn't talk about something you expected we might talk about in the now, let us know. Give us a call. 708-NOW-RAP. That's 708-669-9727. Yep. And like I said before, you want to find our old stuff, find our old Billboard uh, shows, iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, TalkShoe, Podverse FM, NoonFM.com, and also check us out on Podchaser.com. You can see all of our, uh, play, actually play all of our stuff right off there also. So, uh, yeah, thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Me. <laughs> Oh, I got it. Don't don't laugh. You just encourage. I know. I'm don't know what the fuck I'm thinking. Ah, two odds. Two odd. Two odd. Two odd. Two. What did we just say? Two odd. Two odd. Two odd. First we say don't encourage a guy, and then you're two wadding all over the place. <laughs> With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.